Well, thank you very much, Amy, and good morning, everyone. Thanks so much for your welcome. It's um, lovely to be back at the Crescent, and uh, especially to um, have the opportunity to open up the Book of Job. Well done. Um, not many churches are brave enough to tackle this uh, incredible book. It's a roller coaster ride, so I'm sure you're going to enjoy and benefit from uh, the studies in the next few weeks. If you have a Bible with you, you might like to keep it open at the passage which Amy read, Job chapter 1, but there will also be uh, some things appearing on the screen. If I could have the uh, PowerPoint up, um, you'll see uh, all being well that we're we're able to roll with that. How are we doing? Okay, just hang on. We're nearly there. Shall I get rolling and then uh, we'll catch up as we go? Um, Not long ago, I was at a Christian conference and uh, on the first evening, uh, the the child of the main speaker had an accident. Um, He was climbing in a tree just outside the chalet where we were all staying and uh, unfortunately he fell, Uh, he broke his arm and he was whisked off to hospital. Well, after the uh, evening session at which he'd spoken, um, several of us met for coffee to discuss what had happened. Why did that occur? What lay behind it? What caused it? Well, one of the guys said he was about to give a major address at a Christian conference. So the fact that that happened, there he is, thank you so much. he was on the ground at this point. Um, the fact that this had happened uh, must have been satanic intrusion. It must have been spiritual warfare. And someone else said, well, maybe. On the other hand, he was misbehaving, so perhaps it was just punishment for wrongdoing. And uh, another guy over coffee said, well, that's also possible, but could it not also be an overactive 10-year-old and the force of gravity? I think most of us encounter moments when we do ask those questions. What's happening? Why does it occur? And very often, of course, um, more seriously, I can click forward, why me? Uh, Why is one of the questions which appears in the Bible a great deal, as well as in our own hearts and lives. 510 times, a friend told me the other day, And I think relatively few of us escape this. We often come to a point in our lives when there appears to be a clash between what we believe and what's happening in the real world. It's a point of tension that the Bible often speaks about in the Psalms and in the wisdom literature like Job. When you're in that situation, it might be something that invades your life. It could be an accident or an illness or a bereavement. At those points, sometimes even the finest of Christians finds themselves with their head in their hands and their emotions ravaged, their thoughts confused, maybe even their faith faith wavering. There might be some people even here this morning who are like that, who feel they're in that situation or listening to this online. Well, probably the most well-known story of someone in that situation uh, is Job. It's a fantastic book, as I've indicated, because he felt this struggle 
very deeply and at a very personal level. He had these questions about why. And it wasn't at all academic for him, and in fact for most of us, whenever we walk this pathway of tragedy or trial or suffering, it isn't academic for us. And one novelist who was writing about suffering once said, the problem of suffering is the question mark turned like a fish hook in the human heart. It's not academic. Uh, the book of Job doesn't raise armchair questions. They are wheelchair questions. So this book begins with what is sometimes called a prologue. And uh, we'll find in, in chapter one and two that there are two stories going on at the same time. There's one in heaven, and then there's a story on earth. And the passage we're looking at, we discovered Job is tested twice, in fact, in chapter one, and then just quickly we'll look at the test in chapter two. And there's the same sequence in both. But before we come to that, there's just a little uh, introduction to Job. We learn several important things about him. Did you notice, verse one, his moral qualities? Uh, this man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. In fact, that is stated three times just in the section that we're looking at. He was a man of integrity, in other words. Uh, the rabbis used to say his within was the same as his without. And then his social standing, we're given that in the introduction in the opening two verses, two and three. Job was living in the land of us. We're not entirely sure where that was or when he lived. He was there with his seven sons and three daughters, and he was very wealthy. We can see that from the list. 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys. So verse 3, he was the greatest man among all the people of the East. And then, significantly, there's another thing, his spiritual values. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of his family. So Job was very careful to extend his offering of sacrifices to ensure that even his children too were clean from sin and were pleasing God. He was a very committed believer. Well, that's a significant introduction, very important in those opening verses for everything which is going to follow. In other words, it would be hard to find a more upright, more godly, more caring person than Job. Well, this story on earth will continue in a minute, but let's come to the tests. And I'll just put on screen the little structure for the chapter. It's worth seeing how this narrative unfolds. And the same happens with the second test. There's a challenge in heaven, that's verses six to 12. Then there's a description of suffering on earth, that's verses 13 to 19. And then we see Job's response right at the end of chapter one. And we'll look at exactly the same in a minute in chapter two. So first of all, there's the challenge in heaven, which we read. Verse six, one day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came with them. So it's a picture of the heavenly court where the Lord holds counsel. Straight away, this reminds us that there is more to reality than meets the eye. There is a spiritual realm. Christian and non-Christian, very often non-Christians too, recognize this in some way. There is more than just the material. And Satan is there in heaven, standing against Job and against God. Uh, the name means the accuser or the adversary. Satan who is against God and against his people. 
And here he is looking for people to condemn. So on the screen, you'll see verse 8. The Lord says to Satan, Well, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. It's an extraordinary expression of confidence by God in Job. And so there follows a second question, this time from Satan. It's in verse 9. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to his face. You notice what Satan is doing here? He's saying Job's motives are completely selfish. Of course he believes on, in you. I mean, he's onto a winner. Look how you've blessed him. Look at all those flocks. Look how you've protected him. So his faith in you is nothing more than enlightened self-interest. It's quite a serious attack when you step back and look at it. Uh, not simply an attack on Job's integrity, but also an attack on God's character. It implied that God is not worthy of our love He's not worthy of our trust in and of himself. People will only follow him because they're bribed to do so, uh, because the benefits package is so substantial. That's why people believe in God. Would he trust God if he was completely poor? Strip everything away and he'll curse God to his face. Well, the Lord replies to that, verse 12. Very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Two important things to remember here. First of all, God's reply here demonstrates that Satan is allowed to test Job. He is allowed to pursue this wager with God. But Satan only acts within the parameters which God sets. That's very important for us to remember. And second, Job knew nothing about this heavenly conversation. He knew nothing about the debate. Well, now we come to the next stage, after the, uh, challenge, uh, the, the challenge in heaven, the suffering on earth. Um, it is an extraordinary section, and uh, if you have time later today or during the week, it's worth reading slowly, actually, just to feel the, the emotional force of what is said here. Out of a clear blue sky... Job's life is devastated. In just one day, he was stripped of everything. The family were enjoying a meal together, and in verse 13, everything on the farm was peaceful. The oxen were plowing, the donkeys were grazing. Job was at home, and then someone comes to the door. May I come in, sir? Perhaps you'd like to sit down, sir. And the messenger brought this extraordinary news. Raiders had attacked, they'd taken the oxen, killed all the farm workers. I'm the only one left, the messenger said. And while he was still speaking, another messenger arrives. They've been a freak storm, he says, and the sheep have been destroyed. I'm the only shepherd left. And then a third messenger with the account of marauders who had seized all of the camels and killed all of the servants. And then verse 18, even worse was to come. 
what may have been something like a tornado, had blown in, struck the family house, it had collapsed. All of the children, all ten sons and daughters, were killed. Um, maybe some of us here have been in situations where suddenly very demanding news, challenging news arrives quite unexpectedly. It might be a bereavement or an accident or a medical report. Shocking news arrives without warning. And in those situations, it's very difficult to prepare, isn't it? You don't know it's coming at you like that. How would you respond? How did you respond? How is Job going to respond to this kind of news? Well, let's look at his response, which comes at the end of the chapter. Following this catalogue of disasters, verse 20 says, Job tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell to the ground in worship. And listen carefully to what then follows, 21 and 22. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. It's an extraordinary confession, isn't it? What a response to that catalogue of disasters. In fact, it's quite the opposite of Satan's suggestion. Instead of cursing God, Job lifts his hands to bless the Lord. Um, as one writer has put it, anybody can say the Lord gave or the Lord has taken away, but it takes real faith to stay in the midst of, of sorrow and suffering Blessed be the name of the Lord. I don't know how many of us could respond to tragedy in exactly that way. There was a humble acceptance here of what was happening, even turning it to worship. It's never easy, I think, when we're bewildered by what is happening, and I maybe speak to some who are in that situation now, to turn our situation to God. But that is exactly what Job does. Well, that test is over, but the cycle just begins one more time. And uh, let me just quickly introduce the sequence again. The challenge in heaven is in chapter 2, verses 1 to 6. We're back in the heavenly court with the angels, uh, with Satan there before God. And once again, God reiterates his confidence in Job. Verse 3, then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright. Again, underlining it in the story. A man who fears God and shuns evil. And he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. And Satan refuses to give up. If you look at verses 4 and 5, verse 4 is not terribly easy to understand. It may be something like, what you've done so far is just skin deep. Uh, you've, you've just, on the surface... But now, verse 5, stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones and he will surely curse you to your face. So verse 6, you'll notice again, the Lord gives him permission. But once again, it is God who dictates the terms. Satan must spare Job's life. So then we come to the next little sequence. We come back to the suffering on earth. It's verses 7 and 8. Uh, Satan afflicted Job with these painful sores. In fact, the symptoms of this disease often appear throughout the book. I've just put them on screen because we don't have long, but these are some of the features of how it impacted him physically and therefore emotionally. Severe itching, 
insomnia, running sores and scabs, nightmares, bad breath, weight loss, chills and fever, diarrhea, and blackened skin. And it's no wonder that a little later in chapter 2, verse 12, when his friends appear, about whom we'll hear a great deal, his friends appear and they could hardly recognize him. Well, in verse 9 of this chapter, the uh, camera angle widens and we meet Job's wife. She enters the story. It's quite important, isn't it, to remember that Job's wife also confronted the terrible pain of all of those tragedies, especially the loss of her family. And now she was witnessing Job's personal suffering. In verse 9 she says, Are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. I don't know your experience, but it's never easy living close with someone who's suffering. Uh, sometimes that can lead to our own frustration and indeed our irritation sometimes with the person. And in the case of Job's wife, she was irritated, more than irritated, angry with God himself. And we might sometimes feel like that too. And I think one of the lessons in this little narrative is that we should be honest about those reactions. We should be able to pour them out. She wanted Job to give up his integrity, but more important, to give up his God. It's quite intriguing that the two people who knew him best, his wife and God, both saw him as a man of integrity. And so we come to his response. Verse 10. It's a remarkable reply, as the first one was. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all of this, Job did not sin in what he said. Well, what are we to make of this remarkable introduction to the book? I think the obvious thing is that there are no easy answers in these next uh, turbulent chapters, which we're going to look at here at the present. No answers on a postcard. It's like 40 chapters of turmoil, but very important to see what goes on. But I select just a few themes which I hope might provide a framework, not only for understanding the book, but more importantly, understanding what happens in our own lives when we encounter some of these challenges and trials in the Christian life. The first one is this, morality. It wasn't his fault. It's clear from these descriptions that we've mentioned it's three or four times, verse 8 of the chapter 1, the Lord declared, Job is blameless and upright. And it's very clear from the heavenly story, isn't it, that Job is not at fault here. Uh, Philip Yancey uh, once wrote in one of his books, nobody deserves suffering less than Job, and yet few have suffered more. The reason why this is quite important is Job was not being punished for his sins. Um, it will prepare us for what's going to follow in the next few chapters, particularly the well-meaning but rather inadequate and rather distressing advice of his friends. But sometimes the Bible does give examples where suffering is the direct result of human failure or sin, and we must always keep alert to that. But equally, there is not a neat equation. So uh, I had polio when I was a child, and uh, when I was a teenager, someone did come up to me and say, what are the things you need to repent of by virtue of the disability? And it was well-meaning, and I certainly need to repent of lots of things. 
But there is not a neat equation that says if you're suffering, it must be because of sin, and certainly not here in the case of Job. In fact, as I was preparing, it struck me that um, part of our problem is our view of the Christian life. Suffering, testing, as far as, far as I see in the New Testament, is a normal part of Christian living. In fact, here is uh, Peter's advice, 1 Peter 4, verse 12. Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. No, it hits us if we're going to follow Jesus, certainly in this culture. The emphasis on Job's fundamental goodness is really there to underline that there is such a thing as innocent suffering. So as a question of morality then, this suffering was not his fault. Second, integrity, a word I've used several times. He didn't give up. We've seen from the heavenly story that God's confidence in Job is borne out. He is a man of integrity. His faith in God is not to do with outward signs of success, even though he was one of the greatest men in the East. It was something deep in his bones. I think this raises something of a challenge for us as we reflect on this story now and in the next few weeks. Job had been stripped of everything which Satan suggested was necessary for his belief, his loyalty to God. Now he had nothing, but he still holds on to God. It seems to me quite significant, as I've traveled a little bit, that the places in the world where the church is growing most quickly and strongly are very often the poorest places in the world. We meet believers, and I'm sure you do too, who have very little of this world's goods. They have nothing in terms of reputation, very often nothing in terms of health or money or achievement. But these believers are rich in faith. They are generous in their compassion. They're joyful in their worship. In fact, I thought we could almost change chapter 2, verse 8, where he says, there is no one on earth like him. So there is no one, earth, no one on earth like them, those fellow believers around the world 360 million who are facing direct and hostile persecution. Satan asks, verse 9 of chapter 1, does Job fear God for nothing? So I ask, what about you and me? Does Jonathan fear God for nothing? Are we Christians because we gain some sense of security or some sense of identity or our friends are Christians or our family are Christian? What if God took all of this away, everything away? Would we still worship him with this kind of integrity? It's the same question that Satan asks God. Do we worship God for what he gives us or for who he is? Um, some years ago, I read a little book by David Wilkerson. Let me just quote what he says. How many of us would worship God if he offered us nothing but himself? No success, no prosperity, no worldly things. What if once again we had to take joyfully the spoiling of our goods? What if, instead of painless living, we suffered cruel mocking? What if, instead of our beautiful homes and cars, we had to wander the deserts in sheepskins? What if instead of prosperity, we were destitute, afflicted, and tormented? 
And the only better thing provided for us was Christ himself. What if? So I think reading this chapter and Job's response, even as an Old Testament believer, it's a challenge to us, isn't it, to be wholehearted in our devotion to the Lord, irrespective of our circumstances. That is extremely tough. But it's one of the challenges and the lessons of this book. So morality, it wasn't his fault. Integrity, he didn't give up. Thirdly, mystery, he didn't get an answer. For Job and for us, this questioning, which I began with, the why, the why me, why is it happening, that is an important process. And we're going to see, as we go through the book of Job, that in trying to find an answer, Job ultimately discovers much more about the God in whom he trusts, the God he worships. At the same time, as I said at the beginning, there are no easy solutions here. Job doesn't get an answer to this heavenly wager, neither here, at the beginning of his suffering, nor at the end. There is some mystery about it all. Um, I speak to a group of fairly mature believers, I think. Many of us have lived the Christian life for some years, and I wonder if you'll agree with that. There are mysteries, are there not? Which we have to learn to live with. In fact, in the next few chapters, we're going to see that Job's friends looked for causes. They wanted solutions. They wanted Job's situation described so that uh, they could then uh, articulate the problem, solve the problem. Um, here's something what a Christian psychiatrist said about the Christian attitude that can sometimes occur. His name is Paul Tunye. We are nearly always longing for an easy religion, easy to understand and easy to follow. A religion with no mystery, no insoluble problems, no snags. A religion that would allow us to escape from our miserable human condition. A religion in which our contact with God spares us all strife, all uncertainty, all suffering and all doubt. In short, a religion without the cross. And that is sometimes the danger in the Christian faith, that we get close to what Satan suggests. We're in it for what we can get. The prosperity gospel is the worst example, one of the worst examples. There is mystery. And often for true believers, and perhaps this little phrase now coming up on screen will really help, it has done me, this is the issue. Faith is learning to trust God in the dark. We don't always see what's going on. We may not see it until we're there in heaven. But faith is holding on to God, whatever the circumstances. One final point as I finish. Sovereignty. It wasn't out of control. We've seen this repeatedly. Uh, Job didn't know why this had happened, but God had given Satan freedom to test out his hypothesis, this wager. Certainly, it might seem shocking to us that God gives liberty to Satan to act in that way. It appears elsewhere in the Bible, including Jesus talking to Simon Peter, Satan is sifting you. But what we've seen is that God sets the boundaries. God is still in control. I don't know if you'll agree with me, but it seems that some Christians live their Christian lives as if they're in a constant Star Wars adventure. 
and they're surrounded by equal and opposite forces of good and evil. But neither good nor evil is quite strong enough, and so sometimes we assign this part of our life or this event to God, and this part of our life or this event exclusively to Satan. It's almost as if there are these two worlds of good and evil with our own lives swinging between the two. I remember being at a, a prayer meeting with African brothers in Nigeria, all of whom were under a great deal of pressure, I, I should add, unlike me. And one brother prayed, God, things are looking bad, and if you don't do something pretty soon, Satan's going to win, he said in the prayer meeting. Now, it's an understandable prayer, but it's not what the Bible allows us to think. We shouldn't think in these dualist or these polarized terms. This is good, this is bad, this is God at work, this is Satan at work. God is always in control. In fact, one of the words which is repeated in the book of Job, I think 31 times, is the book that Tim, is the, the word that Tim used in our Breaking of Bread service, the Almighty. There it is in Revelation 1. It's 31 times in the book of Job. In other words, as we see in this heavenly debate, God is on the throne. He's in charge. He dictates what happens. The angels report to him. Satan can do nothing without God's permission. Well, as we read this book of Job, it inevitably points us forward to Jesus himself. There we see a far greater suffering, an even more undeserved suffering as Jesus went to the cross. And I think it's there at the cross that we see the answer to this paradox that we've been looking at over these last few minutes, this mysterious relationship between the evil of suffering and God's good purposes. They're met in Jesus on the cross. Now, God is no remote figure who is unconcerned about what we're going through. He allows evil and suffering, but we must always see that in the light of the fact that God suffered himself at Calvary. At the cross, we see God taking sin and suffering seriously in the person of his own son. It's part of this purpose of God's control, God's sovereignty. Nothing is outside of his control. Here's the final quote. This is from Don Carson, who's read a very good book on the issue of evil and suffering. In God's universe, even Satan's work cannot step outside the outermost boundaries of God's sovereignty. While that is what raises the problem, it is also what promises hope. So, dear friends, whatever we might be facing this morning, maybe some things have surfaced in our hearts and minds as we've gone through this little passage. Whatever it is we're facing, let's remember uh, that we are children of a loving Father who is in ultimate control of our world and in ultimate control of every aspect of our lives. God can be trusted. Let's pray together. Dear Father, we thank you that Scripture contains this remarkable story of Job. There are so many things in our world and in our lives which we find very hard to understand. But we thank you that you allow us to bring to you our questions, our doubts, our pain, maybe even our anger. 
And please help us to come to you day by day, trusting you as the sovereign Lord and the compassionate Father. In Jesus' name, amen.